Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you. Yes. Okay, can you hear me up the back? How's that? Someone wave if you can hear clearly. Yeah. Am I ringing too much, David Steele? No. I shouldn't ask David. His hearing is gone by going to too many Ancons, so he can't actually hear normal speech anymore. It'd be great if you have a Bible, if you could open it up. That would be really useful. Let me lead us in prayer as we uh, look at Romans chapter 3 together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to read your word here together at Sydney Uni. We pray that as we bend our minds, the minds you've given us, to understand your word, that uh, your word would transform us as you've promised. It would bring us life as you've promised. And that we'd be able to live to your glory, which is our heart's desire. Amen. Now, anyone here a soy milk drinker? A proud bunch. Uh, One of my sons, not through a choice of his own, has been a soy milk drinker for the last 10 years. He's been drinking one brand pretty much the whole time. So good. Uh, Which, frankly, is a great exercise in marketing spin. Yeah, it might be soy milk, but it is so good, if you believe that. Uh, When he first started drinking it, He just couldn't get enough of it. Uh, He was drinking it straight from the carton, if we would let him. For him, it really was so good. He couldn't get enough of it. But then one day, and I remember the moment, they changed the formula. The cartons all had new and improved taste stamped on them. It might have been so good, but apparently now it was even better. Now that introduced for me a little existential crisis, actually for me and my son. I still remember standing at the supermarket shelf, looking at all these cartons, all stamped with new and improved taste, so good on it. It's a promise, right? New and improved. It's proclaimed loudly from every carton. It promises a future. A future of awesome soy milk experience. And like all promises, it invites us to trust it. To put faith in this promise. Seriously, just wait till you try this. It is so good. And the test of my faith is whether I'll commit myself to this promise, this hope, by handing over my $2.50 so that I can experience the so-goodness of this soy milk. Okay, maybe you think I'm making a lot of a small situation, but bear with me. <laughs> the reason I had this mini existential crisis, though, was because I was automatically a bit suspicious of the marketing graduates, probably who'd been at this university, who dreamt up the advertising. No offence to you if you're a marketing student. Could I really trust that this would be so good? Was it a promise they could deliver? Was this hope real or fiction? Well, we're going to leave me standing in my existential crisis in front of the supermarket shelf for a while, uh, but we will come back to it at the end and I will uh, tell you how I ended up because I'm sure you're deeply fascinated by my story. (laughs) I do want to talk today about amazing promises. Promises that are so good. 
So good that you do wonder sometimes, can this really be true? This is so amazing, this promise is so out of this world, that part of me is just a little bit sceptical. Just wondering whether actually this might be a bit of over-the-top spin. The particular promises I want to talk about are the promises we find in the Christian Bible. Uh, Promises made by the one true living God, promises about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are hundreds of promises of God made to his people, recorded for us in the Christian scriptures, but the particular promises we're looking at today are in Romans chapters 3 to 5. So if you've got your Bible, get it out and let's uh, turn there to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to start from verse 21, but a bit of a recap, first of all. For those who are here early in the semester, you may remember that throughout this year we're taking a number of bites at this book of Romans in the Christian New Testament. So a quick recap for you in case you've forgotten. What's the context? Why does the Apostle Paul write this letter that it's recorded for us in the New Testament? Well, the answer is he's writing to some churches, probably a collection of house churches in the city of Rome, and it appears that there is significant tension between the Christians themselves in these Roman churches. Particularly the tension is between those who seem to have come to Christ from a Jewish background and those who've come to Christ from a non-Jewish or Gentile background. If you look up later, Romans chapter 14, verses 3 and 10, two key verses, I think, for understanding this tension, Romans 14, 3 and 10, you can see that it appears the Gentile Christians were condemning their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. Why? Because the Jewish Christian brothers and sisters wouldn't let go of the Old Testament food laws. So the Gentile Christians were condemning them. But then the Jewish Christians were actually apparently standing in judgement over the Gentile brothers and sisters precisely because the Gentile Christians weren't keeping the Old Testament food laws, which they felt they should be. So the church is divided. And this is a serious pastoral problem. If you've ever been in a church that's that's seriously divided, it is a serious pastoral problem. What's Paul going to do about this? But actually, if that's not serious enough, and that sort of disunity is always serious, if you don't believe me, then you should come along to Ancon and we're going to look at the church. That's my little ad. This pastoral problem has the potential to be a missional disaster for the Apostle Paul. A disaster for his particular mission as the Apostle to the Gentiles. This disunity between the believers in Rome was actually threatening the Gentile mission for which Paul had been set apart by the Lord Jesus. It was going to threaten it in two ways. First of all, Paul intended as an expression of the unity between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, Paul had been conducting an international aid program, which you can read about in chapter 16. Namely, the Jewish churches, predominantly Jewish churches in Jerusalem, Christians, they were were poor, probably because there was a famine going on in that part of the world. And so Paul, as an expression of Christian unity, was going around all the Gentile churches collecting money to then deliver in person to the Jewish Christian churches in Jerusalem as an expression of we're all one in Christ Jesus. However, what he was worried about was the poor treatment of the Jewish believers in the churches at Rome 
if that wasn't addressed, then news of it would inevitably get back to the largely Jewish churches in Jerusalem and that would just put a wider split amongst God's people and tempt the Jewish believers to be less supportive of actually the mission to Gentiles they might come to faith in Jesus. So he's got a problem potentially in Jerusalem with the money he's about to say if he doesn't fix this problem in Rome. That's the first way it threatens his mission. The second way it threatens his mission is because after his trip to Jerusalem, in chapter 16, he says his intention is then to go and visit for the first time the churches in Rome and use that as a base for further mission to the Gentiles further west in Spain. But again, if these tensions between Jews and Gentile believers are not resolved, there won't be a unified support for what Paul's doing in the name of Jesus for this Gentile mission. It won't be supported from Jerusalem and it won't be supported when he gets to Rome. He'll have other problems he has to deal with when he gets to Rome. But he wants that to be a base for further mission to Gentiles. So he's got to fix this pastoral problem. It's a pastoral problem that's going to have missional consequences, a missional disaster. So how Paul's going to deal with this? Well, he writes them a letter. He writes the book of Romans to address this situation. How does he do it in his letter? Well, as we've already seen in the first couple of chapters, he starts his letter with the Gospel. God's good news announcement that Jesus of Nazareth is God's Christ, his Messiah, his Anointed One, the Son of God, the One who is Lord over all. Everything that Paul does in this letter is worked out from this Gospel, that Jesus is Lord and Christ, which just on an aside, that's fascinating, isn't it? When we face pastoral issues in our churches or with one another, do we start with the gospel of God? Or do we start with pop psychology and active listening? Which is great if it comes in a context of working from the gospel of God. That's just as a bit of an aside. Everything he does here is worked out from the gospel. So, having started with the gospel, that's chapter 1, verses sort of 1 through 4. Paul then highlights the particular theme or aspect of this gospel that he wants to use as he addresses the problem. You know, the gospel has lots of wonderful truths in it, lots of, you know, it's like a beautiful jewel that you can look at from lots and lots of angles. He picks one angle to look at this gospel because this angle is going to really help him as he addresses the pastoral problem at Rome. What's the angle he pitches? It's the righteousness of God, that the gospel of Jesus reveals God's own personal righteousness, that God acts rightly in the world, for the world, according to all his promises. That's his theme. That's chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And then Paul goes, basically like a a fantastic lead guitarist, he then goes on two enormous riffs on this theme of the gospel of God that reveals the righteousness of God. Two long riffs, both about the righteousness of God. The first riff goes from chapter 1, 18, all the way through to chapter 3, 20. And that is the the, the gospel reveals God's righteousness because in the gospel God holds all people accountable for their sin. God is righteous in holding people accountable for their sin. He will condemn sin. He is condemning sin and one day he will condemn all sin in Jesus the Messiah. That's the first long riff which we've looked at a couple of weeks ago which is I think up online if you missed it. 
The second long riff starts from chapter 3, 21, and I don't know where it ends. Maybe it goes on to all eternity, actually. But it starts in 3.21 and it goes at least to the end of chapter 8 and maybe just keeps going all the way. The second long riff is God reveals his righteousness in the gospel not through condemning sin this time. He reveals his righteousness in the gospel by saving sinners, by justifying sinners. That's the second way through the gospel that God reveals his personal righteousness, by justifying sinners those who believe in Jesus. That's what we're going to start to look at today. So, uh, I've got three headings there on the outline and who knows where you're up to, but I'm sort of up to the first one now. (laughs) This is the problem. They asked me to write the outline way before I've written the talk, so who knows what I write down, really. I could just write gobbledygook, but I I try not to. Here we go. Right. uh, So, first point, three, uh, three points today. God is just, or God is righteous. And I'm thinking here for the passage from Romans 3.21 through to 3.26. Now, which we just had read out for us. Notice how this little section starts. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Paul signalling, something new has happened with the coming of Jesus Christ. Some new revelation of God's righteousness has now been fulfilled and made known. What is this, how is this new righteousness made known? Well, we can summarise it in chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, but picking it up halfway through verse 22. Have a look at the sentence Paul writes there. He says, For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's a dense little sentence, but it's glorious. Three things to note from that sentence, really, about God's righteousness. First of all, God's shown his righteousness in justifying sinners. God shows his righteousness by justifying sinners. The canvas here is big, right? This is a massive canvas on which Paul is making this point. We're taking in on this canvas the whole history of the world. The terrible plight that sin is in the world and on humanity and yet God's good intentions for all of his creatures, indeed for all of his creation. That's the big picture, the big canvas Paul has in mind here. God has created this world, the world has rejected God, the world is marred by sin, it is in the pain of the curse of sin, what is God going to do about it? What is he going to do about it? God is going to reveal his personal righteousness by justifying the sinners. God is going to do something about this. Now, the full scope of just how massive is God's restoration plan here, we won't encounter until we get to really the end of chapter 8. But here, the centrepiece of God's righteousness is that he justifies sinners. See, if God just left us in sin, left us condemned under God's righteous wrath against our sin, what would happen to God's good intentions for the world? God didn't create us to suffer his wrath. He didn't create the world to be marred by sin. He created it for good, for glory. If God did nothing, what would happen to those things? You see, part of God's righteousness is that he does something to recover his purposes for creation in the face of human wickedness and sin. He justifies the sinners. Now, what do I mean by justify here? 
Um, the word, English word justify, the English word righteous appear to be different, but in the New Testament they come from exactly the same root word. Okay? So you could say instead of justification, we could rightly and maybe helpfully talk about righteousification. It's a much clearer word. <laughs> that is because when God justifies somebody, he declares them to be righteous. And so you notice in, in your English Bible here as you read it, it sort of alternates sometimes between God being righteous or God acting justly. It's all the same word, right? So if you, you then read something, you see it's God shows his righteousness in righteousifying sinners, declaring them to be righteous, doing something about their tragic situation of being caught in sin. This is a declaration that clearly, if you're justifying sinners, clearly this is a declaration that sinners don't deserve. Sinners like you and me, we don't deserve to just be declared right by God. That would be a great injustice, wouldn't it? And yet it's what God does. How is he righteous in doing that very thing? It's not a declaration he makes because of who I am, clearly. I'm a sinner. He does it by grace. And it's a declaration that has effect because I'm not righteous in myself and yet he says over me, because you have faith in Jesus Christ, I declare you to be righteous. It's a declaration that has profound effect, like all words of God. You know when God said, let there be light, it's not like when I say in the dark, in the middle of the light, because I'm lazy and I get up and turn on the light, let there be light and there is darkness. When God says, let there be light, there's light. When Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. And when God says to you, by my grace, as a gift, you are righteous. It's true. Not because innately of yourself you are righteous, it's because he's declared it to be the case. Isn't that astounding? This is what it means. By grace you've been saved. An undeserved, powerful, transforming declaration of God over you that you... That as we read later in chapter 5, he did this even when we were against him. When we were his enemies, he made it possible for this to be declared. If only we come to him in faith. So, this is the first way that we see uh, God's righteousness. He's, he's shown his righteousness by justifying sinners, recovering his intentions for his creatures. But secondly, God's shown his righteousness in justifying all sinners through the same means. This is a big theme, right, through the letter. Understandably, given the situation going on in Rome, Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians, great tension between them at each other, it's no surprise that right throughout the letter Paul keeps emphasising again and again that God shows no partiality. God is not biased. God treats all people the same. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile background person, all treated alike. So God is righteous in executing judgement on sin whether you're a Jew or a Gentile alike. You're a Jew, you claim to be part of the Old Testament people of God. You've even got the Torah, the law, the oracles of God. You think you've got some sort of leg up in terms of righteousness we've got? No, actually Paul said back in chapter 2. It's no use boasting in having the law. 
That's not going to do it for you. God treats all people alike in condemning sin and God treats all people alike in justifying them through faith in Jesus. God shows no partiality on this. And you can see how this is going to help Paul in his situation in Rome. It levels the playing field, doesn't it? The Jewish Christians can't look down on the Gentile Christians because, hey, we're keeping the law, big deal. It levels the playing field. So God shows his righteousness in justifying all sinners through the same means. But then thirdly here, God shows his righteousness in dealing with sin in Jesus Christ. Uh, Have a look at chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Or I'll go from verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace, according to the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And then notice this next phrase. He did this to demonstrate his justice or his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be righteous and the one who righteousifies those who have faith in Jesus. What's he saying here? God has shown his righteousness by not sweeping sin under the carpet, not ignoring sin, but actually by dealing with sin. Facing sin, condemning sin, judging sin, getting rid of sin in Jesus Christ. How did he do that in Christ? Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or as a propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Uh, The reference here is uh, back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. You may know it well if you know your Bibles. Uh, In particular, Leviticus 16 uh, is where we read about the Day of Atonement, which was, uh, and in that um, there were all sorts of ceremonies that God's old covenant people, the Jewish nation, that they were to go through to um, as an, an enactment of their faith in the one true God and through which they were going to receive atonement. And part of that was uh, that the high priest would make a sacrifice, take the blood in, into where the Ark of the Covenant was. He was only allowed in there once a year because of the Holy of Holies, where the the presence of God dwelt. Uh, If you wonder about that, you need to come to Ancon, because we'll talk about that. And he would come in with the blood into the Holy of Holies and offer it over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was sometimes called the Mercy Seat or the or the hilasterion in Greek, which is this word, sacrifice of atonement. So the place where you offered this sacrifice for atonement then became synonymous with the actual offering of or making of this sort of atonement. Jesus, according to Paul here, is God's sacrifice of atonement. Who's the one making the sacrifice here? It's not the high priest. You don't make a sacrifice to be justified. God made the sacrifice for you to make atonement with himself in the person of his son Jesus. Do you see how you are almost irrelevant to it? You're almost not there except that the whole thing happened for you. All of it. This is the amazing work of God in the death of Christ God propitiates himself. He turns aside his own wrath through the sacrifice of himself, but all out of love for you. 
for us, for his creatures. Okay, so God is just, God is righteous. That's really the heart of this passage, but in some ways it's not the big, it's, it's not the, um, it's the heart of this section, yet it's not the totality of the story Paul's trying to tell. What I mean is this. Paul then goes on in two uh, sections for the rest of this riff, from chapter 3, verse 27, through to 4.17. I've given the heading there, Therefore boasting is excluded. So that's 3.27 through to 4.17. What Paul then does, let's uh, just look at verse 27. Where then, says Paul, is boasting? Why does he suddenly talk about boasting? Well, if you've been reading the book of Romans, you'll know he talked about boasting back in chapter 2. If you flick back to chapter 2, you can see in verse 17... Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, or down a bit further, he actually talks about boasting in the law, in having the law, part of the big story he's telling, remember, is saying, levelling the playing field. And he's saying to Jews who have the great Old Testament law of God, he's actually saying, you boast in that, is that going to give you a leg up in justification? No, it's not. He says, actually, that boasting is excluded because now righteousness comes through faith in Jesus. So that boasting in the law is thoroughly excluded. His point is trying to... Then he then goes on in the rest of this section is he establishes that faith has actually always been the way of receiving God's verdict of righteousness. It was never actually by obedience to the law that one received the verdict of righteousness. It was always by faith. And he's at pains to point this out because he's addressing, I guess, the Jewish people there in the church who were sort of holding on to the law and seeking to get a leg up in it. He does it by going to the person who is the father of the Jewish nation, that is, to Abraham himself. And that's really what chapter 4 is about. By focusing on the person of Abraham, he manages to show that actually righteousness has always been by faith and never been by the law. He does it a couple of key verses you might like to just jot down or look at. First of all, uh, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. What we see here is that Abraham was declared righteous on the basis of his faith before he'd received any command of God relating to the law, particularly the law of circumcision. So have a look there at chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It was not through the law, says Paul, that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. It was always not through the law but through faith that this promise of righteousness came. You can see how immediately that sort of evacuates some of uh, the Jewish claim in terms of reliance upon the law. And in this way, actually, Abraham is the father of all who share his faith. If you look back to verse 11, or halfway through verse 11, he has a great summary there in 11 and 12 of what this then means. He says, So then, Abraham is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You can see his point, it's always about faith, this uh, declaration of God's righteousness over you. So he has this long section here saying, actually, Jewish boasting on the basis of the law, that's excluded, because now justification comes through faith in Christ. 
But then that brings us down uh, to chapter 4, verse 18. And that's the third heading there on the sheet, a new boast, but a new boast. Chapter 4, 18, and this takes us through to chapter 5, 11. Paul goes on for a little section here in chapter 4, verses 18 through the end of that chapter, on the faith of Abraham. And sometimes we might read this and go, oh, it's nice, Paul's sort of going on a little bit of an aside, sort of saying how, well, Abraham had great faith, we should emulate that faith. It's true, we should. And Paul does talk about Abraham's faith that we might emulate it, but he's got a greater purpose in mind. What he's actually saying is, Abraham is the father of all who have faith, and the faith that you have is the same as the faith of Abraham. It's faith in the same God, faith in the same sort of promises, the promises that God promises to bring life from death, except you're in a better situation than he was. You can see this uh, as you read, read through that little uh, section there. He talks about how faith comes, um, or faith is in God who promises to bring life from the dead. For Abraham and Sarah, that meant life from Sarah's metaphorically dead womb, as she was very old, yet they would have a child. And, and yes, God brought that promise uh, to fruition. For us, the promise of life from death comes in the life God promises to give us in Jesus Christ. And that same power of God that was a work as God did indeed bring Jesus from death to life. And so, as a result of this, he says in chapter 5, verse 2, as a result of all this, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is why I think this whole section finishes in chapter 5, 1 to 11. Suddenly Paul's back talking about boasting. Now, if you follow what we said, he started out by sort of trashing Jewish boasting in God and boasting and holding the law. He then went he said, cause, and said, now it's all because of by faith in Christ, because of what God has done there. Therefore, boasting is excluded. And look at Abraham, he had nothing to boast about it because it was by faith. And yet now he's saying, so now we boast. How does that work? Well, again, he's levelling the playing field. He's saying it's not that the Jews or Jewish Christians who had the law get to boast. He's now saying, we all boast. What do we boast in? Well, we boast in the hope that God holds out for us in the Gospel. So yes, you stand justified now. Yes, you have peace with God now. Yes, you've been redeemed now and reconciled now, all the truths which are in this passage. But the great hope that the Gospel holds out for you is that on that final day, when Jesus will judge all sin, you will be saved. Do you ever wonder, even if you're a Christian, On that final day, I mean, I've lived my life in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I hope it goes okay. You don't need to have a a sort of a wishful hope like that. Paul doesn't. He says, no, actually, you know what? If Jesus has already died for your sin when you were God's enemies, and now you are God's child, now you are justified, now you are reconciled, have peace with God, redeemed... How much more certain is it that you'll be saved on that final day of judgment? And that's sort of the argument that he makes in chapter 5 from verses 9 through to verse 11. Now for us, we think boasting, that's very un-Australian. You shouldn't boast about anything. I just want to point out here, actually, if you're a Christian, you should be boasting. But you're not boasting in yourself. It's boasting in all humility... It's a boast in God by grace, about grace, 
and done in grace. And what's more, it's not an excluding boast. Normally when you both say, ah, you New Zealanders, you're hopeless. Sorry, probably. You know what? We boast to exclude. You are not as good as us. This is an inviting boast. We boast in the one true living God, in what he has done for all humanity in Jesus Christ. And we, we want to declare that to all people, invite all people to avail themselves of the justification that's had by faith in Jesus and the great love of God. It is an inviting boast that we do to God's praise and glory. Because it's all by grace. It's not about who we were. It's about what God has done. Well, as we finish up, what about me in my mini existential crisis standing there in front of the supermarket store? I bought the soy milk. I showed it to my son. He drank it. It was not so good. In fact, for him, it was so worse. They'd made a promise they were never going to be able to keep. How could they guarantee that every single person would agree that it was a new and improved taste? You just can't guarantee that for something so subjective as taste. It was an impossible promise, a thoroughly insecure hope, and experience proved it. Do you yet see the parallel? Maybe not. (laughs) Here it is. God has made incredible promises to us in Christ Jesus. Those who put their day-by-day faith in him have the promise, this hope, of sharing Jesus' glory. Final salvation. Can this promise be trusted? It seems impossible. Is such a hope really secure? But here, standing in front of the promises of God, experience says, yes, it can. Yes, the seeming impossible promises of God are possible for the God who brings life from the dead, who raised Jesus from the grave. The hope of being saved on that final day, yes, that is sure, that is secure because we know Jesus has already died for us and been raised to life again when we were God's enemies. So we'll certainly be saved by grace on that final day. I'm not sure where each of you are at. You might be standing in front of the shelf today, as it were, hearing the promises of God towards you in Christ Jesus. That's great. But the question is, will you taste and see that the Lord is good? So good. Because what God is assuring us through this part of the Bible is that unlike all the marketers and the advertisers, you can trust him completely. He's righteous. His promises are good. The hope is secure. You can commit yourself to him in faith. It will not be in vain. How do we know? Because Jesus has died and rose again. And that's about as impressive demonstration of reliability as you could ask for. So don't walk away empty-handed. And if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're one of his disciples, then in all humility, with all love for God and for his, his creatures, boast in the glory of God. Boast in his grace to you, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that many might come to him and be saved. Amen.